I was born in Dublin. What part? Denor, Denor Avenue. In the Liberty of the Earl of Meath. The place they all talk about. Is that in the Liberties now? Uh, it it's is, in yeah. the Liberties district. Well, uh, well, of course, there are more than there was more than one Liberty, as it were. Like the Earl of Meath had the Liberty. That is uh, a district over which he had kind of a limited authority. Then the Archbishop had one, and I think there was another one also. So the Liberties, in fact, are a wee bit more than the the Coombe and Thomas Street and up to Hurdles Cross. But it was in the Earl of Meath when I was born on the first of April. What year? 1912. <laughs> it's a very famous place, isn't it, for musicians? I don't know. <laughs> I'm not claiming there anything seems to have, for them. Well, there seems to have been a myth built up about the Liberties ah, in recent purely, years. It is purely a myth. I learned the pipes off John Potts, who was living there. Now, John, if I can recollect, it was 1871, I think, was the his birth year. And he was born in South Wexford. He was actually working in the town of Wexford before he came to Dublin, before he went into Guinnesses. So he was up here, I suppose, about 18, 19 years of age. And he was living there. Uh, he was, I suppose, 28 or 29 before he went to... He would have been 29 before he went to the Dublin Pipers Club to learn the pipes. What he played originally was the, the flute. There's no much point in talking about, we say, the music of the Liberties when, in fact... Uh, John Potts came from Wexford, learned the pipes off Dick Desmarkey, who came from Meath and was associated with Drahod and that kind of thing. The Rousams, of course, were the same. They had come from Wexford, and they would have been in the Liberties also because that Liberty went back up to Harold's Cross, up beyond Harold's Cross Park, came down along Cambrassel Street, back out into Dean Street near St. Patrick's. Who else there? Dan Dowd was... He was born very near me, in Marabone Lane, at least not he was born on the other side of the river, when he was a child, he was reared in Marabone Lane. But it's just really, I think, a myth, you know, to be talking about the, the music of the Liberties. Did you come from a musical background? Um, in, in a sense, yes. Uh, an uncle of mine reared my father, uncles and that, you see. My grandfather died for a young man and this Uncle Joe reared them. And when the, this revival came, we say the Gaelic League and that, the man went off buying the Irish paper. He wasn't able to pronounce it, but he thought he should buy it anyway, Fawn and Lay. And he bought a war pipe for my father and he bought a, a set of Indian pipes for another Uncle Joe. Uh, they were the ones I inherited, as it were. Uh, this was part of the you know, the new activity, as it were. The man was Irish-minded. Uh, my third uncle, James, he bought him a fishing rod. I, I don't know why it was the wall pipes. And my father then was in, he was in the Pipers Club a year or two after it started. It started here in Dublin in 1900. He lived at the top of Coombe Street. And the, the side wall was at the back of Newmarket Police Station. And he said... He was terrified one Sunday. A head arrived over and roared out of the stop playing the pipes. You see, they were just adjoining St. Nicholas without the, the church on the coom. You see, and the minister was given his sermon and he sent round word to the police station to get the pipes stopped. He would be finished in 20 minutes and then whoever was 
playing they could play again then like <laughs> but they were <clears throat> being trying to listen to the word of God on a Sunday and Brian Baru's march I'm sure very badly played <laughs> was on and on and on you see so he, my father, and John Potts were very friendly. There were two young men, as it were, working, each, uh, living near each other and that. And I have a very distinct memory of the big, big man coming in each Sunday. He'd come in after whatever Mass it would be like. And I can remember him sitting down. I can picture where he sat in the kitchen and that. I can't remember him playing, though I... <clears throat> He actually did play because the uncle was living at home and the pipes were there. So that's afterwards when I did come to play the pipes myself, which was about 15 years of age, some of the tunes, the minute I heard them again, I knew I had heard them before. Now, the trip, trip to the cottage was one of them and the maid on the green and Jackson's morning brush. I heard, when I began to learn them, I realised that I had known them before, as it were, like... What put me on those pipes was there was a family across the road from us in Hamilton Wards that were mixed up in pipe bands and that. And I went across him at Christie. He was in the Finton Dollars at the time also. And um, he gave me a practice. Chandler showed me the scale and a few doubling, doublings and this kind of thing. And <clears throat> I got as far as the first two parts of the Barton Rocks of Aden. And what was it, the Earl of Mansfield's March? I could play them. And my lip opened, you see, so I had to give up the practice chanter. An old cousin of mine at home said, listen, why don't you get your Uncle Joe's pipes? They have a bellow, she says, and you don't have to blow into them. You see, I said, where are they? And she told me they were with John Potts, you see, so she told me where John lived and I went down. He was a fine, fine, big, big man and there were two steps up to the house like and I knocked at the door and this giant looked down at me and I said, I've come from my Uncle Joe's pipes. You see, see dumbfounded. He hadn't, didn't know who I was, what I was at, you see. And then he made, oh, he said, you, you must be a son of Pat's. I said, yes. So in. And thereafter, I'm sure for years and nearly every night of the week, I haunted poor Mrs. Potts. As I said before, I don't know how much she must have drunk tons of tea on her, like, for year in, year out. I started actually, as it were, learning, going really to a teacher. <clears throat> Went down to Bill Andrews, he was down in Essex Quay. Um, then I achieved a practice set, just four pounds, Leo made it. Leo uh, Rossum? Leo Rossum, yeah. Uh, it was basil bag and that kind of thing. And I think the bellows now are still in existence. Leo made a tremendous, uh, easily moved kind of bellows. Uh, the chanter, of course, was the concert pitch. That, And um, I went down to the tech, as we called it, on Chatham Road, the municipal school of music, or it's college, wherever it is now. Leo was there, did he be? Pat Brophy used to go there. Uh, uh, Purcell Leo was teaching the war pipes at the time and Leo would be in and out like and uh, um, Dan was there also and what I used to I'd go in and get my lesson off Leo Leo had a great gift if you ask him any tune at all the books of Ward Moore now, he would never say listen wait until you're able to play it or that kind of thing just hand him the manuscript and he'd write it out now he'd write it out quicker than 
you could copy off a off a book or that kind of thing and um, hand it back. I would put it in my pocket and up then up on the way home, Potsdam between Chatham Road and the North Avenue, and I'd go in there undoing, I suppose, what I'd learned in the tech, because John had a different style of piping. He favoured the closer style, and Leo was kind of legato, as it were. This went on for for some years. Brother Gildas used come in August. He Who was, was Brother Gildas? Uh, Brother Gildas was Patrick O'Shea, his name was. He was a Delisal brother. He was from Kerry. He was a nice speaker, a traditional singer too. And he learned the pipes of a man called James Burke in Kilfrush, near Knocklong, which was near one of the um, the viscates of the Delisal um, order. Gildas went to him for five or six years and played exactly, he wouldn't even change a note from the way he had learned it from Burke. Burke had learned the pipes from a man named Fraher, who was alive around the beginning of the last century, around 1800. So that um, if I learned a tune, Willie Clancy learned also, John, John Reed, <coughs> various people learned tunes off Gildas that way. But you might say we were learning them from Gildas and Burke from Fraher, so that around the 1930s or that you were learning a tune that you could really put back to 1800. Fraher must have been born, we say, even in the previous century. Um, Brother Gildas, a beautiful player. He played um, 16 half Egan set of pipes. He was fanatic after Egan pipes and that. He ended up with a chanter of all dimensions that Egan had ever made, from a small little wee thing right down to 18 inches. Beautiful range of chanters he had. What I was contemplating was a, 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 a national archive of Irish music that would have songs, Irish, English, the music, and this. Now, there are a whole lot of other kinds of songs, also we say dialects, uh, classical music and this kind of thing. And there is, I think, a... But not a, a case, but there is really a, a narrative necessity, we say, of creating a an archive of sound. What would strike me about it was that we say that the National Library, which has gives access to the public from 10 in the morning to 10 in the evening, would be a, a centre for it in a way, that RTE must have a tremendous amount of material of plays, um, lectures, music, all kinds of things, you see, that there is a tremendous amount of material altogether. And we say with RTE that they certainly have the uh, the facilities, that all these things should be put on a national basis, that it shouldn't be, we say, expected of any particular one to do what a whole lot of other people should be involved. All the other organisations up to, we say, 1951, you had the um, Society for the Preservation and Publication of Irish Music, of which Petrie was the chairman, and there were lords and ladies and dukes and duchesses in charge of it, but it was ineffectual. The Feshkjol was started, and nobody now could believe that the primary purpose for founding the Feshkjol was to save Irish music. There were other efforts from time to time made about saving Irish, but these were all made by people outside. You know, there were in the same situation as the 
the ornithologist is to the bard. But in 1951, when the quota started, it was a, an entirely different thing altogether. Here you had actually a society of practitioners, as it were. They were kind of a, a guild. They were all in, you see. And in the first years, there was that kind of a feeling until I think people began to think about organisation and about rules and regulations and eventually you ended up that you had people in it who had no knowledge whatsoever at all of Irish music. I can remember sitting down at a, a national executive meeting, it used to be the Four Courts and Sundays, and there were 24 or 25 people at the thing, various parts of Ireland. There were four people who could have played a jig, and I'm sure there were only the four who would have known the difference between the jig and the reel at it. But they had learned arguments about the 109 clauses they had in the Constitution, this kind of thing. You once said, uh, Brendan, that it was an organisation with a great future behind it. Yeah. What exactly did you mean? What by I that? meant was, who you had, unlike the ones I had mentioned, you know, outside people, uh, preservationists, as it were, you had actually an, an organisation composed of, like a trade union or a guild, as it were that were all practitioners. And in a sense, they had... They possessed themselves already, the music of Ireland, among their own members, as it were. And in 1951, the tape record was there already. And with little organisation... It struck me at the time, now I'm talking from Dublin uh, at this stage, that uh, you could have sat down, devised a scheme and um, got the music of Ireland down on, on tape, as it were. Now, there's no doubt at all about it that a live performance is the thing, all right, but the next best thing to a live performance is a, is a good recording of it. And a recording of that kind, you can imagine 1951, that's what, 28 years ago, uh, all the musicians who died, think of them. If you had proper recordings of those, you had really historical documents that would be unique and we had such a store of folk music too that we could have a tremendous collection far beyond anything possible in any country of western europe say but instead they produced a constitution that's as big as the state constitution it had a book of rules i think there were about 109 rules in it when i left the thing and the whole organisation was caught up in whether you should have a branch in London or whether there should be a province or whether there should be something or other kind of thing, you know. Should you give more marks for a child who plays on the sea clerk's whistle than a, or a generation because it's harder to blow a sea and all this kind of stupidity and on and on it went. Uh, now, these are all admirable activities and that kind of thing. I'm not saying these things should be stopped, nor if I talk about traditional music, do I mean that a person with a piano shouldn't play Irish music. Uh, all we have to think of it, I spent a good deal of my life learning Irish, and it would never cross my mind to say, unless you're a native speaker, you shouldn't speak Irish. But what I'm saying is that if you belong to an association that is concerned about traditional music played in a traditional manner, you have no business in uh, button accordions, in harps, in uh, mixed instruments. I believe every instrument now is acceptable, 
according to the rules of the courses, except a guitar which has sexual symbols associated with the light, you see. So, since we're saving the soul of Ireland, we couldn't very well have um, competition for the guitar. So I'm told, really. The Peabody Union started after a flash hole. We started on 1968, so it must have been a flash hole, a county one or wherever it was, in Milton Malbay. And I can remember the Tuesday morning when the, the crowd had gone, all the noise subsided and that, and the people were getting order back onto the streets, sweeping it up and this kind of thing. Uh, there were four or five of us in Wilson's pub in the morning. Uh, Seamus McMahon was there, Martin Talty, Sean Reed, myself. I mean, there was somebody else there. And somebody passed the remark, wouldn't it be great now if you had a flower which the public weren't at it like? And somebody else, probably Sean Reed, said, no, it wouldn't be better if you only had pipers at it. So I said, that's very easily arranged. I said, you can arrange a weekend quite easily. So from that, um, Seamus McMahon and myself were left to arrange the weekend. And um, we looked around various places to see. We, we hadn't an idea in the world how many would come to it or that. But I forget who put us onto Betty's Town and we decided we'd have the weekend there. The Piper's Club in Thomas Street gave us, I think it was, a grant of, well, a loan it was, in fact, of £50, you know, towards the running expenses of it. And we started off, and in the event, 1968 it was, something 50, between 50 and 60 Pipers arrived in Betty's Town, Saturday afternoon, as it were, they came from all over the place, even came from America. The one or two had come and come from England, but from the length and breadth of Ireland that were there. Uh, people were playing at that, and around nine o'clock, I can still remember, Seamus Ennis took off the coat, folded it neatly, you see, and uh, put on the pipes. Other people had been playing before him. And uh, most impressively, tuned them. Uh, was ready to play and just stopped, paused. Now he says, everybody ready with the tape recorders. You see, so the tape recorders were all let go and Seamus played now inspired altogether. Now, when he had played, oh, a couple of hours, he took off the pipes and he handed them to um, Willie Clancy, who was sitting beside him, seeing... Willie played a few tunes and took them off, like, you know, and um, was handing them back. Oh, no, no, whoever, Lee Moog, I think it was. That's the thing now. Would never have happened to any of the old pipers. Uh, first of all, if they thought that you could learn the tune, they wouldn't play it. And the idea of handing your pipes to anybody, the excuse was it'd blow them out of tune, which they would, of course. It struck me, you know, I was amazed because I had been long enough listening to old men talking about uh, what pipers did. One poor man, when the priest had given him extra function, he called for the the pipes. But it wasn't to play farewell to music or anything like that. But he took the reeds out of the chant and the regulators and bit them so that nobody would play them after. Well, this is the kind of another man wouldn't play, you know, until he sent the wife to the door to make sure there was nobody outside listening. The poor men thought they had something like. Seamus had no trade secrets, no nothing. If you 
asked him what he didn't sing or he commented on that was a nice little return there. He did it again for you and it wasn't his fault if you hadn't got it. So, on the, the Sunday, uh, Sean Reed thought he wouldn't have been able to come and he wrote a very lengthy letter to be read out. So, he did in fact be, manage to be there and when we had eaten the lunch and that we had a meeting of all the 54 pipers and John read out his letter saying that we mustn't part now until we had formed an association of our own. Leo Rousam loudly applauded that, that was a great idea. Uh, Seamus Ennis decided that should be the Peabody Alien was the name of it, like we'd got that far and then we were kind of beginning to get arguments then, you know, constituent assembly of 54 pipers. <laughs> so I stood up and I said, I think Certainly, everybody was going to start an organisation with the Pipers, that was agreed. But I thought that the, the quickest way of deciding what the rules and regulations should be was to appoint three or four people, to get them down on paper, to circulate them to everybody, all people present and not present, and to have another meeting, we say, in October, I said. And that's what we did. Now, I had, as you know, I was assistant secular cultist at the time and had experience of all this arguing and bickering and about what rules meant and what it didn't mean and all this kind of nonsense. Uh, so I decided that the constitution of the Piper was going to be right, be within a quarto page. And in, in fact, there are, I think, 294 words in it. Right from the outset, we restricted it to practitioners. You had to be a piper, no good, bad, and different. It didn't matter. So that as long as you played, as long as you played, or begin learning the scale, you hadn't even to be able to play the bottom D, like, but you were launched. Um, the organisation grew. We had, I had before that, in my own like collecting that I had come across. Uh, the cylinders that O'Neill had sent from uh, Chicago to Father Henderbury in 1908, that's over 70 years ago now. Um, he had got Patsy Tui and other people to play and sent them over for a Christmas box. There's a reference in Irish folk music, O'Neill's book, you see, and it crossed my mind that Henderbury had ended up Professor of Irish in Cork College in the and uh, I asked a friend of mine who had connections with the college and he took up the phone and phoned and half an hour it was established. There were cylinders there, all right. And they did turn out, in fact, to be those particular cylinders. You might recollect the amusing one about the... He was writing about Patsy Tui playing the Shaskeen Reel. There was a superior limit of Irish piping. And... Uh, he declared it was a greater human achievement than the building of Brooklyn Bridge or the writing of the Homeric Ballads. And that was among the the cylinders there. So that you can read O'Neill, you can play the Shaskeen and decide how good or Patsy Tui was, and then you can also decide how extravagant Father Hennebury was in his language. We have upwards now in the pipers of 300 members. We have, I think, 190 here in Ireland. There are five in Australia. There are 33, I think, in the States. And we have Sweden, Denmark, Holland, France, Germany. Uh, we have nobody in Italy, unless he's roaming around unattached. Uh, nobody east, Eastern Europe. We have people in Alaska, though. So from Alaska right down to Perth and Australia, we have members.
be unkind to say that I don't listen to it, would it? Really, I think that what Sean did was he made it popular, that he gained an acceptance for that wouldn't otherwise have been gained. But he said, like a lot of other people, more than his prayers when he came to be non-European, non-harmonic, non-so-so, you know, that's, I think, uh, there's no point in that kind of thing. And there was a lot of nonsense spoken about Cardolan and what he did to bridge two civilizations. In fact, you know, uh, it struck me as very light-hearted that nothing of Cardolan survived in traditional music. You've never heard anybody play anything. I mean, the concerto comes out of O'Neill's book. Uh, no bits and pieces of his of his verse ever survived either in Irish, like you see. So that uh, he's a romantic figure, but when you've said that, you've said it all, I think. On the the Kultori Kulan, I didn't really see very much difference between it and the Kilfenorda Cayley Band, except I thought the Kilfenorda Cayley Band had a better lift in their music. You know that when you had knocked the piano and knocked the drums and knocked everything else, you suddenly were confronted with the harpsichord, bones and fellows roaring at the top of their voices. In fact, I'm kind of doubtful about there being any future at all for Irish music. Uh, the music had to function, we say, in... in, in well, rural Ireland didn't matter, even in, in small towns and that up to 70, 80 years ago, when it was played for dancing. And when dancing stopped, as it did finally, we say around 1940 or that kind of thing, there was no reason for playing music except that some people liked to play it and some people liked to listen to it, kind of thing. Now, um, without a function, I don't know that it's going to survive. And I think over the last five years, I think we have reached the peak of those kind, that kind of audience. I have a feeling that uh, the people now willing to listen to the music are uh, um, getting scarcer. Would you think that because of the boom in traditional music over the last, say, partic in particular the last ten years, that it has been a bad thing overall because it has been, it's gone through a fierce commercial upheaval and it's been exploited. That is so, but um, when the boom subsides, they depart, as it were, like. And I think the effect of it will be that there will be slightly more people interested in Irish music than there were before the boom started. You know, there will be a residue, as it were, will stick to it. But I think mostly all the huge audiences there was for Irish music will... Uh, they'll turn their attention to something else. Um, people who play other than pipes can follow whatever is curtained, we say, if it's some other kind of music or that. Uh, a piper is stuck to what's playable on the pipes, as it were, and I think there that the pipes are li liable to last in this way, that they are, as I said before, a peculiar kind of an instrument, and you can <coughs> make a kind of a fascinating hobby about it. Uh, they're difficult enough to get you to spend a whole lot of time at them, and there is a tremendous body of music also. But I can't there, which might answer your question, I can't there imagine Piper getting tired of the books of Ward and Ward, say, and uh, demanding something new. I can't imagine anything new being better than the books of Ward and Ward anyway, like.
Yeah, I went into Pinkett's. Um, I can remember the man's name, Tobin was his name, and I asked him about their were the interested in publishing collections of Irish music, and either were. And then he, he broke the news that it would if I paid for the printing. I came out across the road and bumped into a friend of mine. I had been working with him when I went into the civil service first, Sean McGardle. He was high up, say, in the Department of Education at the time. In fact, he was on his way around to the Dáil. So we were picking up the threads since the last meeting you know, how are you, and this kind of thing, and we used to sit at the pipe. So I, I overed the, the encounter with Piggott's. So he looked at me and said, could you write something about the music as well? I said, yeah, of course. So he, he said, I'll phone you tomorrow, and he phoned me the next day. He had been in touch with the goon, and if I wrote something in Irish, we say about the music, it would be reading matter in Irish, and the music would be an adjunct to it. And um, I thought then that I should um, add to it to make a kind of a sizable book about it. Uh, went around, Tommy Potts, of course, Tommy and myself were more or less the same age, so I got music from Tommy, from Theresa. Uh, Tommy Rick was around. Then I went to the St. Murdy's Club in um, Church, Street. Church Street. John Egan was there. Got music from John. There was... John Brennan, met Sonny Brogan. I could have filled a book from Sonny. Sonny was, uh, Sonny was able to call out the tunes. He was standing at the counter and he called them out. And if you were playing um, pipes that weren't in the tune with the box, he could transpose in his head kind of thing for you. Like uh, I got a tremendous amount of music from, from Sonny and from Ned Staple and that. So... Uh, shortly, we say, I had a collection of this thing. I had written the first chapter of a, a book on Irish music in Irish and um, sent it into the department. <laughs> and months and months and months went by. I heard nothing at all about it. They had sent it out to some reader for his opinion and it hadn't come back. So I phoned my friend and it was very quick action. And... Um, I met the person in charge of the goom at the time and there was a kind of a suggestion uh, kind of tentatively put to me, would I mind, instead of writing, we say, 12 chapters that I proposed, would I mind, as it were, reducing it to about, well, a thousand words? So, of course, I didn't mind reducing it. So what, in effect, was it was going to be a, a book of music with an introduction rather than a book about music with an appendix of music in it, like it. And in the... And anyway, the book was kind of finished, 214 tunes, and then it went to the department. So the show rink, as it were, represented the, the current music of the time, 1958, 19, well, 56, 7, 8 kind of thing.